Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We look at the temptation of Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, some of you know that this past Monday night, uh, the LSU baseball team uh, won the College World Series in the best two out of three uh, over Florida. I was watching it at RYM. We got to watch the first two hours live before we had to go to large group. And there were some kids who were cheering for LSU. There were some kids who were cheering for Florida. And there were some kids who were cheering against LSU, right? <laughs> Whoever, it doesn't matter who they were playing, just against LSU. Um, uh, probably like what happened to some of you Mississippi State and Ole Miss fans uh, after y'all won the last two years, the, the baseball championship. Uh, several people sent me texts uh, congratulating me. And, and you, you think, oh, this is very strange. What did I do, right? What did I do to help win this, uh, this championship? Congratulations, you've done it, right? What did my efforts at following their season closely over this past year contribute, you know, even the iota toward their victory? And yet there is an appropriateness, isn't there, uh, to congratulating the, the fan, the follower of someone whose team right, wins the championship. Uh, the victory of that team is the victory of its followers. Uh, even the players say that, right? We want it for our state. We want it for our city, right? We want it for our school, right? And there are benefits that accrue to the community when a school wins a championship. Uh, and, and so that victory for LSU was, in effect, my victory, wasn't it? But, but it was more than a victory for the fans of, of LSU. It was also an encouraging example for every fan, for any fan. Right, because in, in game two of this series, LSU lost to Florida by a score of 24 to 4. This is like a football score, right? I mean, this is unheard of. It was the most runs ever scored in a College World Series baseball game, 24 runs. There was a, an article in an LSU website that said this, LSU failed miserably in all three phases of the game, pitching, hitting, and fielding. And yet, in the very next game, rather than throwing in the towel, right, rather than just saying, we're done, we'll never be able to beat this team, right, they turn around, forgetting what lies behind, and they win 18 to 4. And so regardless who you were cheering for, you can step back and you say, this series was an incredible series of, of perseverance, of endurance, of, of being able to, 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 you know, to flush the, the past and to say, we are going to focus on the now, the present, the future. Victory and encouragement, victory and example. I bring that up because in our text this morning, as we look at Jesus winning the victory over Satan in the wilderness, what happened with LSU this past week for its fans, for all fans, should happen for the followers of King Jesus in our text this morning. What Jesus did in resisting Satan's temptation, it is our victory, and it is our encouraging example. So hear God's word, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that they are without error, that they are our light, that they are our guide, that they point us to the Savior. They show us how we ought to walk. Lord, would you come and use this text, this passage, this story, for those glorious ends, that we would know Jesus better, that we would understand your grace, Lord, that we would be able to walk according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to see these two things this morning, that Jesus's victory over Satan, over temptation, is our victory, and that Jesus's victory over temptation is our encouraging example. First, Jesus' victory is our victory. To see this, you have to sort of look at this text with a wide-angle lens and with a, a zoom lens. First, the, the wide-angle lens. Let's take a step back and, and remember what's going on here. We saw last week that Luke is wanting to show us Jesus as the second Adam, as the true and the better Adam. And when we look at his temptation here in the wilderness, we see several comparisons and, and contrasts with Adam's temptation in the garden, don't we? I've just told you one. Right? One was in a garden, one was in the wilderness. Both of them involved food, right? but, but Adam's was in this, this plentiful, lush paradise. Jesus's was in this barren wilderness. Right? Adam was free to eat from any tree of the garden except for one. There, there was no external need right, for Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. He had everything he needed. He, his, his hunger was satisfied. Jesus, on the other hand, was starving, right? He was, he was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days. From our perspective, it would make all the sense in the world for him to do what Satan was tempting him to do. And yet, Jesus refuses to give in to Satan's temptation while Adam bites, literally and metaphorically, right? when the devil holds out the forbidden fruit through Eve, whom he had deceived. Both Adam and Jesus were on probation, but where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds triumphantly. But this temptation narrative doesn't only uh, point to Jesus as the true and better Adam, it also points to Jesus as the true and better Israel. Again, consider the similarities and the dissimilarities. Here's Israel. We've just read in Deuteronomy 8, they're, they're wandering right through the wilderness for 40 years. Here is Jesus fasting, wandering in the wilderness for 40 days. Both Israel and Jesus were hungry in the wilderness, but Israel received manna, quail. God provided food for them, and yet they still rebelled 
and doubted God's goodness. Jesus, on the other hand, is given nothing. And yet, he remains a loyal and a perfectly obedient son without any hint of bitterness or grumbling or complaining. Again, where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. And as we look at this passage in a Zoom lens, right, we, we see that, that in each case, Jesus is replying to Satan with the words of Scripture, in particular, the words of the book of Deuteronomy. Right? And in his replies, in his responses to Satan, we see in each case that, that Jesus has learned Jesus knows and is remembering what Adam should have remembered in the garden, what Israel should have learned in the wilderness. Jesus' allegiance to his father was being tested, and it was proven. Jesus quoting Deuteronomy to the devil from chapter 8, as we read this morning, and twice in chapter 6, shows us that his victory is a representative victory, even as Adam represented all mankind. Jesus, representing his people, comes to conquer on behalf of his people. Let, let's look at each temptation, and we'll see that in more detail. We come to the first temptation, and Satan says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, this if is, is not so much a questioning of, uh, or a challenging of Jesus' identity as the son of God as, as much as it is an assumption of it. If you're the son of God, because you are, since you are the son of God, why don't you just satisfy your hunger, right? Tell these stones to become bread. Satan is tempting Jesus to be the wrong type of son, to misapply his sonship independently of the father and of the father's will. He's saying to, to, to Jesus, is your father really good? Right. Has your father really said? Right. Does that sound familiar? What Satan said to Eve in the garden? Has God actually said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What is Satan doing but tempting Eve to, to doubt, to disbelieve the goodness of God? And here Satan is doing the same thing. Since you're the son, why is your father not providing you food to eat? So why don't you just use your power and, and make bread for yourself, right? You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, right? You're the son. And what does Jesus say in response? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, as we've just read. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And we know the rest of the words, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Adam had God's word but he rejected it for the fruit that God had forbidden him. Essentially saying, you know what, Satan, you're right. God is not a good father. He is trying to keep something from me, right? I know better than God. It's okay to, to do what God has said not to do because it's good for me. It feels good to me. It feels right to me. Israel wandering in the wilderness. As we just read, God let them hunger so they would learn that, that there is a food that is so much more important, so much more vital than, than physical food, right? A, a feeding on the promises of God, the, the, of provision and protection, the, the word of God, the commands of God. There is more to life than living, as one commentator put it. Jesus, as 
a loyal son here is valuing obedience and faith and a good father more than satisfying his physical hunger. He is submitting to his father's word, to his father's will, that he be hungry, that he be hungry for his people. Of course, as the divine son, he, he could have used his divine power to, to turn stones into bread. It would not have been sin, but to do so would be to deny his mission. It would be to deny and to distrust his father who would provide for him in his time, in his way. And so unlike Adam, unlike Israel, Jesus denies himself. Jesus resists Satan's temptation to doubt his father, resists the temptation to misapply his sonship, and lives obediently to his father. Which brings us to the second temptation, now, Satan brings Jesus and probably in a vision shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And he says, to you, I will give all this authority in their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Right? The temptation is clear. Forsake your father. Join me. Come to the dark side. Right? All this dominion will be yours. All this kingdom, all this authority and glory will be yours. Jesus, again, he doesn't bite. He knows that no one is worthy of his allegiance, of his loyalty, but his father alone. His loyalties, unlike Israel or Adam, lie solely with the father. Right? I'm not going to give worship. I'm not going to give honor or obedience to anyone else but to the Lord God. But, but there's more to this temptation, isn't there? Again, Satan is attempting to get Jesus to deny his mission, to misinterpret his sonship by obtaining glory and power without suffering, without the cross. Satan is essentially saying to Jesus, why does suffering have to come before glory? Why does the cross have to come before the crown? Here's the shortcut, Jesus. Here's the cheat code. Here's the way to, to get around all that suffering. Worship me, and I will give you glory without suffering. Why wait? Here's instant access. Here is immediate gratification. Why suffer? Why hurt? Come, bow down to me, and you'll have it all now. Do you remember when Jesus in Matthew 16 and Mark 8, tells his disciples that he is about to, to be crucified, that the, the Jewish leaders are going to put him to death and he's going to, to be killed. And you remember Peter rebukes Jesus and says, God forbid it, Lord. And what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus bring up Satan in that moment? Well, it's because what Peter was was saying to Jesus was satanic in its origin. Again, trying to, to act as if the, the cross was unnecessary. Let me keep you from suffering, Jesus, Peter is saying. But that is satanic logic. Now there's an irony, isn't there, in this temptation? Because by suffering and by dying for his people, Jesus is going to obtain what Satan is offering. In Psalm chapter 2, we hear the Father, with that eternal covenantal promise, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Satan is saying, if you worship me, I'll give you the nations. And Jesus knows the word of God. He says, 
I'll never worship you, Satan, and I'll take the nations by force. Thank you very much. By refusing to be unfaithful to his father, Jesus is binding the strong man so that Satan cannot deceive the nations any longer, so that Jesus can go and plunder the house of Satan and take what rightfully is his. Jesus is the perfect son who submits to the father's will, even when that will calls for self-sacrifice, even when that will calls for long suffering. Again, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And then finally, the last temptation. Satan, again, probably in a vision, takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and calls on the Son of God to throw himself down off the temple. Because Satan knows the words we've sung today in Psalm 91. Right? That, that the angels will protect the people of God. But Jesus realizes that, that what Satan is doing here is, is not only misapplying the word of God, but if Jesus were to do it, it would be putting the Father, the good and gracious Father, to a test. It would be faithlessly putting God to the test, forcing God's hand. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel had done that, hadn't they? We read about in Exodus 17 at Massa, how there had been no water to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and with God. Right? Where is the water? Why have you brought us out in this wilderness just to let us die of thirst? If God is really among us, why is he not taking care of us? Let him prove his presence among us by giving us water. And God says, you are testing me. You're putting me to the test. But Jesus knows that that his father will faithfully and lovingly provide all his needs. He doesn't need to test him. Right? He, he knows that, 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 that Satan is, is calling on him to misapply what being a son means. Hey, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want it. And Jesus says, no, I'm the son of God. I submit to my father's will. I, I don't put him to the test. I, don't, I, I, I trust him. I don't need him to prove to me that he loves me. He has told me. In his word. I know that he has the best in mind for me. I don't need to do something foolish to get him to show that he will protect me. And so here is Satan tempting Jesus, tempting him to deny his sonship, to live out that sonship in a way that would displease his father, to, to worship Satan instead of the father, to put his father to the test. Satan throws everything at Jesus. You notice how Luke puts it there in verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation. Right? As you see in verse 2, it seems likely that, that Satan's temptations happened throughout the time that Jesus was, was in the wilderness, throughout the 40 days. But the three listed here perhaps are, are the climax of all of the temptations of Satan. And when Jesus refuses to succumb, when he resists Satan, Satan flees. He's driven from him. And again, what is the point? But that where Adam and Israel failed to obey, to remain loyal to God, Jesus obeys. Jesus succeeds. Jesus passes the test. So what does this mean for us, the people of God? Well, just like people say to you when your team wins the championship, congratulations, right? Congratulations. You're like, what did I do? You did nothing. But your champion did everything for you. Jesus, 
in this story is accomplishing your salvation. Jesus is winning the victory over Satan. And just like when David, the shepherd boy, won the victory over Goliath, the people of God were winning the victory over the Philistines as the shepherd defeats the giant. Jesus has won the victory over Satan and his temptation, and we have gained the victory in him. Adam and Israel were faithless sons, and we know in our own hearts that that faithlessness runs in the family. Each one of us is a faithless son or daughter. But Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful, and his faithfulness is our salvation. Right here, Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled. Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent. He is foiling him in his temptation just as Adam had represented all of his posterity unto destruction and death, so Jesus here in this story is representing all those whom his father had given him before the foundation of the world unto our salvation. Here in the wilderness, he is accomplishing, he is achieving our righteousness before the father. He is obeying for us in our place as our substitute. If you trust in him this morning, then he is your righteousness, his victory over temptation, his obedience is reckoned to your account. It is counted as yours. Some of you know the name of J. Gresham Machen. He was a leader of orthodoxy in the early 20th century against theological liberalism. He was a, a founder of Westminster Theological Seminary and of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. In God's providence, he died at a young age of 55 in, in 1937, January 1st, 1937. He had been in North Dakota preaching and he, he got pneumonia, he got sent to the hospital, he eventually dies. But from his deathbed, he sends a, a telegram, sort of an early text message, right? A telegram to uh, his colleague, John Murray, back in probably Philadelphia there at Westminster Seminary. And he writes these words, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I'm like, huh, why did Machen on his deathbed focus on, not on the death of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, what we call the passive obedience of Christ, but the active obedience of Christ, the, 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 the fulfilling of all righteousness, the, 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 the work of Jesus that we see here in Luke chapter four. Why was that what Machen focused on? Because he realized that the gospel is not merely that our sins are taken away through Jesus' death on the cross. That justification is not merely just as if I've never sinned. The gospel is also that Jesus never sinned. And he gave to his people his perfect obedience, his righteousness, he has taken away our sins, yes, but he has clothed us in his righteousness. His victory is our victory. His victory over Satan is our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. What you read here in this text is the glorious gospel. But this victory over temptation is not just our victory, it's also our encouraging example, right? When I was in college, I played ultimate Frisbee at LSU on the club team. If you don't know what ultimate Frisbee is, it's sort of the combination between football, basketball, soccer, with a Frisbee, all right? 
And one of the things that was said to me when I was learning how to play was this little tagline, a little joke, I'm sure they're kind of making fun of me, two hands while learning. Right? It meant that, that when you were learning how to play this game, you didn't need to try to catch fish with one hand. You need to catch with two hands like a pancake, right? But what I've come to find out over the years is that two hands while learning is not just something for beginners. It's something that we ought to do throughout our time of playing this game, however long you've played. And the same is true in the Christian life. We need a two-handed approach to God, to his word, to Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus is our substitute. But on the other hand, Jesus is portrayed throughout the scriptures as our example. And we see it even here, don't we? Jesus encourages our hearts and he sets an example for us in this temptation. If, if Satan was brazen enough to tempt the son of God, even though now he is a defeated foe, Peter says he's still a, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is going to seek to get you and me to defect from following the Lord our God. Satan, the world, indwelling sin, the flesh within us, remaining corruption, we are beset by temptation. And so we need the encouragement that this passage gives us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. The author says, Because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear the, the words help? The authors of the scriptures are saying when you read this passage of Jesus being tempted, you need to find encouragement. You need to find help. How? Well, first, we see in this passage in, in Hebrews that, that Jesus, because he has been tempted, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to endure the attacks of Satan, to live in the, the frailty of human circumstances that make temptations all the more alluring. Right? Jesus can sympathize with us. Jesus can come to our aid as one who has been where we are. But second, Jesus gives us courage and strength, right? Because he never gave in when tempted, because he never sinned, he never wanted to sin. Therefore, he is our great high priest who gives us the access, who enables us to approach the throne of grace, not with fear that the wrath of God will be poured out on us because of, of our sin, but with confidence, with joy, with courage, he helps us to draw near, not with fear, but with the knowledge that our Father loves us and will help us and will give us all the resources we need to resist temptation. Which brings to the third way Jesus helps us. He shows us the exit door. Right, you remember the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Jesus gives us the strength to endure temptation. He shows us the exit door that we might escape the grip of the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
And, and finally, he encourages us by reminding us that God is sovereign over our temptations. Notice there in the first verses that it is the Spirit of God who leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Yes, we are to pray, lead us not into temptation. And we are to resist sin and flee the devil and, and we're to flee sexual morality and we're to, to, to run away from the opportunities to sin because we know our weakness, we know our sinful hearts. But sometimes God does permit Satan to sift us as wheat, to use the language that Jesus used of Peter on the eve of his crucifixion. Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. And the implication is, and we've let him. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, we have let him. Sometimes God allows Satan to sift us as wheat. But just as God ordained Jesus' temptations for his glory and for our good, so he ordains our temptations for his glory and for our good. And what is the good? Well, do you remember what Hebrews 2 said, that, that, that temptations were part of Jesus' suffering? And later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8, we read that, that Jesus learned obedience through his sufferings. Well, the same is true for us. When we are tempted, we are learning to obey God. Now, for the, the sinless Son of God, of course, his learning was not a movement from disobedience to obedience, Rather, it was a, a gaining of experiential knowledge of, of all that obedience would mean, all that it would entail in particular moments of time. But for us as well, when we are tempted, we are given new opportunities to prove that the Lord alone is our God, that our Savior is our King, that we live by His Word alone. We do not live according to our own appetites, our own desires. And even when we fail, miserably. Even when we give in to temptation the way that Peter did when he denied Jesus three times, God is teaching us. We are learning how frail we are. We are learning how dependent we are, that we cannot lean in on our own strength, that we cannot depend upon our own goodness. We must guard our hearts all the more diligently against temptation in the future. And, and when we fail, we are able to sympathize with others all the more in their temptation. And just as Jesus encouraged Peter when he said, you're going to deny me three times, he said, but when you turn, strengthen the brothers. Right? When we have failed in temptation, not only do we learn what obedience looks like, but we have the opportunity to encourage others. God uses even our failures for good. Do you see how encouraging this, this text is? But it's an encouraging example as well. It's an example for us. Because here in this passage, Jesus shows us how to fight our spiritual war against Satan. And what is the answer? We fight through the word of God. We fight with the Bible. Right? The shield of faith is how we quench the fiery darts of the evil one. But the weapon that we use to fight back is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We said it to the children, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Clearly, Jesus has the word of God hidden in his heart. He's quoting Deuteronomy to the devil, right? Do you know your Old Testament? Do you know the book of Deuteronomy even? Do you have scripture stored up in your minds, in your hearts, so that when, when temptation comes, the word of God is there, ready at a moment's notice? And so I encourage you to know where you are most tempted and to study the scriptures, to search the scriptures, to ask your, your brothers and sisters, your elders, your pastors, what are scriptures that I can use to fight against sin, to quote to Satan when he attacks me? Are you tempted by lust? Matthew 5, verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Are you tempted to drunkenness, to addiction? 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Are you tempted to gluttony, to overeating? Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where, where Paul says, the end of the enemies of God is destruction. Their God is their belly, their appetite. But my citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, from which I eagerly await a savior. Are you tempted to coveting? Luke chapter 12, verse 15, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed, says Jesus, for not even one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Pride, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. Simple as that. Selfishness, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others as more important than yourselves. You see, everything that we are tempted by, the word of God speaks to it explicitly, and we must hide God's word in our heart and meditate upon it and memorize it so that in the heat of the moment, we are able to use it as the sword of the spirit against Satan. Brothers and sisters, this passage is glorious. It shows us Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, our victorious king, victorious for our salvation, for our encouragement, for our example. He has conquered the great foe, Satan, in hand-to-hand combat so that we might hope in him, in this glorious good news, in this alien righteousness credited to our account, that we might be strengthened as we remember the fellow feeling of Jesus with us in our temptation. And as we look to his example, as we imitate him day after day in our fight against the devil in every temptation, may God make it so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious story of our Savior's victory, our victory in him. Lord, we thank you and pray that you would help us, help us to imitate you, help us to follow you, help us to know your word. Help us, we pray, to live according to it. Oh, Spirit, come and give us grace to resist and to flee temptation. Help us to see those ways of escape and to actually walk through the door and to leave temptation. Father, we pray that you would help us to love you above all things. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.